Testing one, two, testing, yep, yep. I think we're okay. How's it sound? Uh, several people who I saw when I walked in tonight um, said, oh, you're going to be funny, you know? <laughs> I can use a good laugh. Uh, I had planned a serious talk. <laughs> you know, funny people, most of us really want to be taken seriously. We just haven't learned that skill. That was the, something, you know, being funny was how we learned to get along in the world. So, you know, we have a hard time. Um, but I can't disappoint. So I have something that I will share. Uh, you will find this funny, I guess, if you uh, have some mild distaste for or uh, grudge against corporations <laughs> or globalism. Uh, these are uh, a few things that were passed on to me. They're, they're uh, mistakes that corporations have made in their advertising abroad. For instance, Coca-Cola translated its name in Chinese as Kiko Kila, not realizing until thousands of signs had been printed that the phrase meant, bite the wax tadpole. <laughs> And uh, an American t-shirt maker in Miami printed shirts for the Spanish market commemorating the Pope's visit, but instead of, I saw the Pope, the shirts said, I saw the potato. <laughs> and General Motors tried to market the Chevy Nova in Latin America, unaware that in Spanish, Nova means it doesn't go. <laughs> and... Uh, GM changed uh, the name to Carib in Spanish-speaking countries. Ford had a similar problem marketing Pinto in Brazil, where Pinto is slang for tiny male genitals. <laughs> they renamed the, the, the Pinto uh, Carcel, Corcel, horse. And uh, in Taiwan, Pepsi's slogan of come alive with the Pepsi generation was translated and printed on thousands of signs as Pepsi will bring your ancestors back from the dead. <laughs> Which may or may not encourage you to drink Pepsi. <laughs> So I, I want to talk about thinking tonight, uh, about your thinking, about my thinking, and not about the content of our thoughts, but about the process of thinking. It's really, it's, uh, really the fourth foundation of mindfulness, Dhamma Nupassana. All the elements of our mental life and how they interact to create our reality. It's something that should be high on your list of things to know about, how your reality is created. Uh, like most people, uh, before I started meditating, I pretty much was solidly convinced that I was my thoughts. Whatever I thought was me. 
completely identified with my thinking mind, my mental life. In our culture, that's what's valued, that's what, it's, what is emphasized. The intellect, you know, that's what we get graded on, our ability to come up with thoughts and to put them together and to work with them, manipulate them. We go around thinking that our thinking is us. Even the bad thoughts, you know, if we have bad thoughts, we're supposed to be ashamed of them because somehow, you know, we we did create them. Then, I was really shocked. And I'm sure many of you have had the same experience. When I first sat down to meditate and realized that I could actually observe my thinking mind, But if I was observing it, then was I doing the thinking also? And I was surprised that my thinking could go on even when I wasn't intending it to go on. And in fact, my thinking could go on against my will. I would sit there intending to be present with each breath and thoughts and images will continue to arise and bubble up and It was a real shock. When I first uh, went to meditate in India in 1970, my first retreat or two, I would continue to have songs come up in my mind, rock and roll songs. (laughs) And they would come up and they were insidious. They just wouldn't go away. You know, I I just, they're very irritating to me because I wanted to be meditating, serious meditator. And, you know, here's... Rolling on a river. <laughs> what kind of a, a doofus am I? But and it was so it was so insidious. If a song arose in my mind that was on a side of an album that I had played many times, my mind would track right through the whole album side. Maybe you've had that experience. Even. Sometimes a song would arise, and I would go back to my breath, you know, for 10 or 15 seconds, and then the song would appear again, and it'd be 10 and 15 seconds later in the song. (laughs) I began to see that uh, a lot of what was going on up there that I had identified so closely with was really a lot of reruns of stuff that had been put into me from various sources, parents, culture, etc. That indeed, maybe, uh, you know, it wasn't something to be taken quite so personally, to identify quite so closely with. More and more, I am regarding the thinking mind as a pulse as a life pulse, not that different than the breath or heartbeat, as I mentioned in the meditation. Thinking as something that minds do, brains do, part of the human condition, continual monitoring of the world, continual adjusting this particular organism for maximum comfort and survival, that is one of the functions that goes on. And if we all compared our thoughts, I mean, I, I, I would love sometime for everyone to be able to sit 
with the mind of the person next to them. (laughs) And notice how common the issues are, really. How common all the patterns of thinking are. You know, the names are changed, and the, the details are a little different. But really, this is just this pulse that's going on. After watching my mind for 25 years in meditation, I find it very difficult now to really take it too personally. I still take it seriously sometimes when it tells me to do something, you know, makes plans. And But I'm beginning to understand it really as an organic, natural process. And it's... it's uh, A big relief. It's not something that I struggle with so much anymore. And especially not in meditation. Often people, especially beginners in meditation, think that meditation is about getting rid of the thoughts. You know, clearing the mind out, and then something happens. Bliss, enlightenment, that's enlightenment. But I think what what really happens is a shift of how you relate to your thoughts and how you understand them. And I think if, you know, one of the most significant things that has changed in my life since I began meditating is how I relate to my, to my mind. And recently, this sense of my thinking mind as a pulse has really been substantiated by research I've been doing into the latest scientific discoveries about how the mind works, how the brain works, and how the scientists believe the mind arises out of the functions of the brain. I've been doing this reading, uh, I've always had an interest in it, but I've been doing this reading for a book I'm writing about the four foundations of mindfulness as a kind of evolutionary journey, a way to really understand ourselves as part of nature, to realize our nature as nature, that actually we can be liberated through nature. We don't need some big cosmic consciousness, but we we could also be liberated through a kind of biological consciousness. Uh, And it's fascinating what the neuroscientists have come up with. I want to share some of that with you tonight, Uh, draw some broad parallels between what the scientists have found and what the early Buddhist sages described as how the mind works. Striking parallels, striking similarities, it's just amazing. And and then we'll have some time for for questions and and, uh, discussion. Some parts of this I, I will read because uh, I just couldn't, I mean, I, I worked on putting it well here, and uh, it's, some of it's a little complicated to sort of extemp on right now for me. Uh, let me just start with a, a quote from Tulku Ergen, this great Tibetan master. Um, he says, The stream of thought surges through the mind of an ordinary person. He calls it black diffusion. This state is an unwholesome pattern of dissipation in which there is no knowledge whatsoever about who's thinking, where the thought comes from, where the thought disappears. One has not even caught the scent of awareness. 
There are only unwholesome thought patterns operating so that one is totally and mindlessly carried away by one thought after another. That is definitely not the path of liberation. <laughs> it really is amazing. I mean, when you think about our, our great sophisticated knowledge about how the world works and, and how little knowledge we really have of how our mind works. Uh, I think most people probably know more about how uh, coffee is produced than how the thoughts, their thoughts are produced, or how most people probably know more about how their, their automobile engine pistons fire than how their synapses fire and communicate with each other, the brain cells, how, how they talk to each other. Uh, we really uh, are ignorant, and it, if we only knew how much suffering goes on because we don't understand how our reality is produced. We would drop everything and go immediately to a crash course of meditation. Um, so anyway, there's a great revolution going on right now in neuroscience. It is really the, 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 the big breakthroughs in science are now going on in, in natural sciences, biology, genetics, and uh, in particular in neuroscience. They are making use of information from biology, physics, chemistry, and psychology, and they're looking into the brain with these incredible new computerized technologies such as PET scans, positron emission tomography, which take color-coded pictures of ongoing brain activity, the superconducting quantum interference device, the SQUID, which measures the magnetic field created by electrical currents in the brain cells. And what is emerging from all of these pictures and this research is uh, a shocking kind of discovery uh, about how we know and respond to the world, and that what is becoming clear is that we are not who we think we are, and we may not even be doing the thinking. Um, some neuroscientists, many neuroscientists in fact, but uh, one of the more famous ones, Daniel Dennett, says that uh, these mental processes that create our perception of reality take place mostly beneath our conscious awareness. Daniel Dennett calls it the subpersonal level. In other words, we're not conscious of the process that creates our thoughts and images. We may become conscious of them after they've been created, but we aren't conscious of the process that creates them. And the reason for that, one of the reasons we're not conscious of them, is because the process happens so fast, and it happens over a field of such incredible complexity. For instance, neurobiologists estimate that the amazing organ inside your skull, and by the way, as I talk about this, you might just reflect on the fact that this is your brain that we're talking about here, and it may be working just like this right this moment. Neurobiologists estimate that uh, the brain contains 50 billion cells, neurons, all linked to one another through a million billion synaptical connections. Adding up all the possible combinations results in the number 10 followed by millions of zeros, creating more cognitive possibilities in your brain than the number of positively charged particles in the known universe. 
And that's just the beginning of the complexity. The inconceivable number of brain cells communicate with each other using both chemicals and electricity, with signals sent at an estimated firing rate of 10 million billion times per second. The result is a self-organizing network so precise, adaptive, and powerful that the brain has to be considered the greatest marvel and wonder in all the world. At least to itself. <laughs> Another reason for the brain's incredible complexity is the fact that different bits of our experience are, are produced by little separate agencies in the brain. The various scanning technologies reveal that brain functions are so compartmentalized that loud sounds and quiet sounds are handled in different subsectors. The colors red and green will provoke responses in different parts of the visual cortex. The verbal areas of the brain are so specialized that nouns get processed in one place, verbs in another. Furthermore, one brain area processes regular verbs, such as walk and walked, <laughs> while another brain area processes irregular verbs such as leap and leapt. The act of imagining an activity will activate a different part of the brain than actually doing the activity. So that our rehearsals go on in one part of our brain, in one venue, and our performance goes on in another venue of the brain. It's amazing when you think about it, it, that your reality is constructed, you know, it's like this uh, big assembly plant up here, and there are different parts of your reality being constructed in different parts of the brain. And uh, all of this is going on sort of subconsciously, unconsciously. According to many ne neuroscientists, the various subdivisions of the brain are, and this is a quote from Daniel Dennett, Non-conscious bits of organic machinery as utterly lacking in point of view or inner life as a kidney or kneecap. In other words, the separate agencies that build our concepts and images and thoughts, our mental life, contain nothing that resembles soul or self or free will. It's basically stimulus response, but it just happens to be happening and over this incredibly vast complexity, this field of incredible complexity. One of the reasons that our brain can process so much information is the fact that it is continually talking to itself. It's in constant, all these little parts of the brain are in constant communication with each other, sending signals back and forth. And, in fact, they say that, uh, the scientists say that when you see something, the act of seeing, the information your brain processes, only 10% of that information will be the information you receive at the retina. All the rest of the information that is processing will come from other parts of the brain. In other words, you see somebody walking down the street, the image comes into your eyes, and then all these little agencies get busy, you know, and one picks out the color and light, and one picks out the, you know, the features that may be recognizable, and the other one goes to the memory bank and pulls out, you know, 
like images and uh, another goes to you know where you've maybe seen this person before maybe you haven't do you like them another goes to where you're you're what are you feeling today do you want to encounter them do you want to move across the street and not encounter them all of this is going on so that old saying you know what you see is what you get is not really the case what you get is what you see plus Everything that you've ever done, plus all of evolution, all these evolutionary structures, all of that processed, uh, all of what you see processed through all of that, and that's what you get. It's really quite amazing when you think about it. Um, when you think that, you know, what, 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 we're, what we're interpreting, what, what we're getting as a picture of our reality is really... Not the raw data. It's been passed through a lot of uh, a lot of interpretation before it gets to us. The brain is truly a marvel. Nature has constructed it with an ability to organize itself. What the scientists call a, a self-organizing capability. It provides its own checks and balances and ways to safeguard its own operations and survival. Systems theorists describe self-organizing as a unique feature of living systems, which are open, meaning they are not necessarily subject to the laws of entropy, but are able to adapt themselves to changing circumstances. Self-organizing is really the sine qua non of evolution. It is the, you know, the, the, main, the main key that keeps life changing and moving and adapting. As an integral part of its self-organizing function, the brain has the ability to create what systems theorists called emergent properties. In other words, the brain can break old habits and acquire new ones, which accounts for our ability to learn and adapt. The scientists have discovered one particular section of the brain that seems to be of utmost importance in bringing about change. This section of the brain is called the anterior attentional network. It's also often called the executive network because it's concerned with focusing attention when a non-habitual response is called for. Very interesting for us who do Vipassana meditation. You see, they think that, well, they know. They, I mean, they've, their instruments tell them. The brain really sets itself. In, uh, in the embryo stage, in utero, many of the connections, the main communication lines are laid down in the brain. By the way, you know, the brain is not, uh, the brain of an of a embryo is not the same as the brain of an adult. We, it goes through all the stages of evolution. There's a lizard brain and a mammalian brain, and then uh, the human brain, the neocortex, gets built on top of that. So we all have a little lizard and a little lemur in us. Because it all gets sort of fit over, all these brains sort of get fit over each other. And they, uh, the wiring you know, is, is, uh, pretty, is pretty tightly woven. Anyway, these communication, the major communication lines get laid 
uh, when we're still in the uterus. And um, then when we come out, the first three or four years of life, our experiences uh, set many more of the patterns of neurons, the way the neurons fire, the, the, the sort of communication lines, and set the way we respond to the world. But they have found that these can be changed, that, you know, it is workable. Um, and what, what helps somehow, what comes into play somehow when we, when we want to change the habits of mind, or when the mind wants to change its own habits, excuse me, um, is that this anterior attentional network comes into play. For instance, there's this uh, Stroop test. Uh, The words for different colors are written out in ink of another color. For example, uh, green is printed out in red ink, and then the subject is told to ignore the word and name the color of ink instead. (laughs) So your habitual response would be to uh, name the, the word, you know, but... So the ante- the, this executive network comes into play because you're called upon to make a non-habitual response. According to the scientists who have been do- doing work with this, uh, this executive network, they say that it's somehow related to our subjective experience of awareness. That somehow when a decision has to be made, we really have a sense of self. We really have a subjective sense of that we are doing something. Which brings us to what the neuroscientists call the hard problem (laughs) of consciousness or self, which they can't seem to locate. (laughs) They have looked everywhere in the brain, and they have no idea where the self or the subjective, the seed of subjective experience lies. They have a number of theories about how we get this sense of a, of a unified, say how all these separate parts of our experience get unified into one single sort of flash, you know, of, of one single subjective sense of, of knowing a couple of the theories. One is that there are convergence zones, what they call convergence zones, that are sort of like stations where, that, where all the signals go through. There are a number of them in the, in the neocortex. And that in the process of sort of coordinating all the information from all the various parts of the brain, we get this sense that there is someone actually doing this, but it's actually just another process that's going on in the brain. Another idea is that there's this little oscillating wave that happens every 0.12 thousandth of a second that moves through the brain and sort of sets everything so that we get, again, we get that flash of subjective experience, coordinating all the different uh, little bits of information, little bits of reality into one kind of subjective experience. There's one uh, scientist, Ray Jackendoff, who simply suggests that consciousness is no big deal. He says, uh, 
and, and there are a number of scientists who go along with this in, in, in kind of a separate, they put it in different terms, but he says that what becomes conscious is not of our own choosing, but depends on what the unconscious brain processes, the computational mind, deems worthy of bringing to conscious attention. In other words, the, it, it's the unconscious that decides what we should pay attention to. We don't even get to choose what we're going to pay attention to. According to Jackendorf, uh, what we call consci- consciousness is therefore not good for anything. <laughs> they're really puzzled by this, you know. I mean, they're going in there and they're saying, "Okay, where's the leader? Where is the, you know, where is the the person who directs the show?" Because we've all sort of have this sense that there's someone up there directing and in charge and. And they can't find it, and it's it's bothering them. <laughs> Maybe consciousness is just there to fool us into believing that we play a part in creating our reality, thereby making this organism more proud and protective of itself. This is a statement from the Daniel Dennett. You enter the brain through the eye, march up the optic nerve, round and round the cortex, looking behind every neuron, and then before you know it, you merge into day- emerge into daylight on the spike of a motor nerve impulse, scratching your head and wondering where the self is. <laughs> What's amazing is that the uh, early Buddhist sages came to very similar conclusions as the neuroscientists are coming to. And they did it simply by meditating, watching their own mind, and, and, and probing deeply with deep curiosity and concentration into how the mind works. They explain it all in the Abhidhamma, which is the Buddhist text of psychophysiology, really. And in that text, in the Abhidhamma, you see that the, 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 the sages understood, first of all, how compartmentalized the brain is, how fast things are happening in the brain, how fast the process is going, how impersonal that process is, how seemingly impersonal that, you know, it goes on, just, uh, it sort of takes care of itself, it has its own self-organizing properties. They also discovered that they could bring more consciousness to that process. In fact, their entire reason for studying it was to see if there was any place that they could intervene in the process and actually create more freedom of choice. There was some place that you could actually perhaps help evolution along. And and somehow take this process and, and work with it. Let me just uh, give you a few glimpses into some of the Abhidhamma ideas about how the brain works or how the mind works. Brain meaning, you know, this organ and how, you know, that's what really what the scientists are studying. And actually the puzzle is how does mind or consciousness emerge out of these functions of brain? Um, 
in the Abhidhamma, the sages uh, deconstruct mental life into these infinitesimal uh, units of experience called mind moments. And each mind moment lasts for a billionth of, a, of the time it takes to blink an eye. That's what it says. The, a billionth of the time it takes to blink an eye. That's uncannily similar to the understanding of, of the firing of the, of the brain cells as they communicate with each other. The mind moments are described as appearing and disappearing in sequence, almost like energy quanta, and moving as quickly as subatomic events. The sages further divide mind moments into mental factors, 52 different mental factors. According to the Abhidhamma, seven of the 52 mental factors are universal. In other words, they are present in every single mind moment. These factors are contact, perception, feeling, volition, singleness of object, attention, and psychic life. They work roughly as follows. This is the basic, uh, the basis of all experience, roughly as followed according to the Abhidhamma. First of all, contact happens. An object, sight, sound, thought, smell, feel, taste, registers in awareness. Immediately, the feeling factor is engaged to consider the flavor of the object, the kind of sensations that it evokes. This primary feeling, either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, is an instinctual reaction to the object. At the same time, the perception factor is noticing the salient features of the object, its size, its color, its texture, or pitch. Once perception and feeling are engaged, the volition factor begins to enter and coordinate and direct the activity of the non-universal mental factors that are arising in regard to the object. Interest, anger, perplexity, the non-universal mental factors are really the personality of the mind, while the, the, uh, the basic feelings are instincts. These are the habits of the mind that are acquired over our life experience. Which of the factors, the non-universal factors, arise depends to a large extent on the psychic life factor, which is the force of habit or temperament. And all of this time, the mental factors of attention and singleness of object are holding the object before the mind, clarifying and engaging it so all the other activity can proceed. So the sages, you can see these universal mental factors as they're as roughly analogous to the neuroscientists' different agencies of the brain. Each universal mental factor takes care of one particular element of cognition. So that you can see that the, the sages did a, their own kind of PET scan, you know, and discovered this. And of course, in the Abhidhamma, one of the most important of all mental factors is mindfulness. I would like the neuroscientists and the Buddhists to get together and do some testing. And it is being done. There are, in fact, there are some very famous uh, neuroscientists who are also Buddhists and know about Buddhism and are working in this field. There's one book called The Embodied Mind by Francisco Varela and two other people. Very dense book, but very interesting in drawing these parallels. And uh, this factor of mindfulness, when it arises, seems to have the ability the ability to withhold our habitual responses to things. 
seems to be able to intervene and perhaps give more consciousness, bring more consciousness, more conscious awareness to the process so that perhaps a different kind of response can take place. Another kind of pattern can be learned. I want them to, to see that if, if meditators are in mindfulness, is this anterior attentional network lit up at the same time, you know? Wouldn't that be an interesting, you know, pattern, correspondence? But when you think about this, all of this incredible complexity going on up here, I mean, first of all, it makes you just like, bow to nature, bow to whatever is behind this mystery. I mean, what, what an amazing, an amazing organism we are, and this brain is. Uh, and it can process so much information, you know, and it's just it's phenomenal. And then to think that it all goes on within us and without us, that really so much of what we have taken to be I and are so identified with is really the brain processing information and adjusting and adapting without us being there. Now, of course, in our culture, we're going to have a big problem with that. But... Buddhist meditators have, for centuries have been saying, you know, this sort of, it, it sort of takes care of itself. We don't have to take it all so, quite so personally, and we don't have to take it all, you know, like it's all on our shoulders. The brain, it's working. It's working for you. <laughs> but then there is the, the idea and the, the reality of anyone who's ever sat down to meditate, that you can actually see into this process. You can become conscious of it. You can change your whole relationship to it. You can awaken to its nature. And you can work with it. It's workable. All those neuron, neuron what do they call them, um, resonating neuronal assemblies. The patterns in your brain are set. They're pretty hardwired, but you can work with them. You can change your habits of mind so that, you know, if we could come to the scientists and say, you know, you're right. You're, you really got this, you know. Here's what we have to offer. And maybe the neuroscientists will someday come up with some, you know, prosthetic device or some kind of switch, you know, where we can turn, turn the thinking on and off when we want. You know, if, it's, if our thoughts are full of sorrow or self-criticism or anger, we can just, you know, oh, okay, we'll turn those off and just, you know, turn on the happy, compassionate thoughts at will. But until then, this is what we've got. But it's a pretty time-tested and uh, amazingly precise method of seeing and, and working with this thing we call thinking.
the thinking mind. Um, I'll I'll stop here and see if uh, there are any people who have questions or comments or additions. People maybe there's some neuroscientists, biologists. Yes. Right. Didn't the Chinese believe that the, uh, the liver is the seat of the soul, right? And No, there are different cultures believe that it's in different places, in the heart-mind. Yeah. But there's, there's um, another perspective that certain um, scientists like Penfield, at the later part of his life, believed that the mind expresses itself through the brain, that the mind is a non-material or a higher energy source expressing itself through the physical body. And if that were the case, or, and through the brain, if that were the case, then the, nine, the mind would not be, or at least especially the, the deeper aspects of the mind, would be um, not be perceivable through the methods of science. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, Wilbur, uh, Ken Wilbur, in his books, uh, Sex, Ecology, and Spirituality, and the, another book called uh, uh, Brief History of Everything, um, says something I think that is really cogent to this whole discussion, and that is that um, Buddhist meditation works in the realm of the I and we. It's an interior view of the mind. It's how we actually experience the mind. And science deals with the mind in terms of an it, of an object. And so it's very important for us for us to distinguish different modes of exploration mm -hmm. um, and it's my of course my prejudice to believe that the mind is only ultimately explicable through I and we investigation and not through it mm -hmm. investigation and then lastly near-death experience shows um, has gives us prima facie evidence that the mind exists prior and after the uh, creation of the brain and the body and which, which goes back to the whole ontological assumption that the being of the person is expressed through the mind and the body, but does not arise out of the mind and the body. And evolution is, is, is a liberation within nature of this presence that enters into the cycle of incarnation and mm -hmm. Beautifully put. Uh, the same scientists that study, that look for the mind in the brain say that there is no mind in nature, that evolution has no mind or hand guiding it. Right. They're looking at it. Yeah. I was once doing some reading about it. I don't know if you've seen that book, Brain Sex. Brain Sex? Sex. Brain Sex? Actually, in the zygote, all 
all zygotes are female. And af after a period of time within the womb, um, the embryo, because of the hormones and everything like that, take on the attributes of their X or Y chromosomes or whatever and start to form a male or a female and how you must have probably read about how the differences about the, our brains are different. They're arranged differently, uh, female brains and male brains. But I want to ask about, so the sense of self that we all have, I, I think my cat has a sense of self. <laughs> and so then it just kind of goes haywire on this talk because in a sense we can't be so, um, I don't know what the word is, is pompous to think that uh, we're the only ones Absolutely, absolutely. No, a, a cell, a single cell has a sense of its own self. I mean, it has a, a membrane that surrounds it, and it, you know, if you poke it, you know, with something sharp, it retracts, and, you know, it's a, it's a basic quality of all living things to have some kind of sense of, uh, you know, itself as an organism, as a single separate uh, organism. I don't think it's wrong. <coughs> we, would, we would probably not last very long did we not have a sense of self. Yeah. Thank you. How do you use this line of inquiry to further your practice? How do I... It just... I, I am aware of how much of my thinking is really a, a very natural occurrence based on millions of years of development of a particular way of uh, responding, interpreting the world, that in, in many senses my thinking is not mine. I don't own it in a sense that it's unique to me. It's common. We all hold these, the same evolutionary structures and the same processes go on within all of us. So it really, uh, it, I feel not quite, I don't feel so, so attached to my thinking mind or fight it or struggle with it quite so much. Um, and I just, it, it creates a great sense of, of connectedness for me by, by holding the image of what, you know, what I've read about the brain through the scientist's view. This is a little off subject, but um, the Dalai Lama in the book, the, um, the Good Heart, which is the, one of the things he says is that, um, that for people, that he feels it's important for people not to have the teachings of, of, of no self too early in, in practice, because it can be misinterpreted as a sense of a, of a uh, as a disbelief in agency or persons, and I just wondered if you had anything to say about um, agency and self, or I mean, just what you would any reflections you have on that statement. The question is, uh, did you hear the question? Everybody hear the question. Uh, the question is about agency and self, uh, of about how. Um, the Dalai Lama was, was cautioning people not to bring in the concept of no-self too early because it gives people a sense, I guess, of nihilism or the, that there's no... A disbelief in agency 
see and persons. And yes. And feels that that's important that people don't... A disbelief in agency, it creates a disbelief in agency and persons. I think that um, my feeling about it is that we tend, that the balance that we need in our culture is less, to think less that we have agency and to become more and more aware of how little agency we actually have. I think that we really think of ourselves as completely independent of everything, you know? Nature's out there, it's nothing, has nothing to do with me. Uh, you know, others are out there, everything is sort of separate from us, and that we're independently acting on the world, never noticing that we are of the world. And as being of the world, it diminishes our agency. We're part of everything. That that is the balance that we need. Within that, we do seem to have some free will. We do seem to have some ability to act. But first of all, we have to really see how habitual most of our actions are. We have to see how unconscious we normally are before we're ever going to either be motivated to become more conscious, if that's possible, <laughs> or ever have any more freedom over our behavior or our thinking. So I, you know, I really agree with him, and, it, and it's, a very, it's a very interesting issue to sort of reflect on and, and play with. You know, again, that the... The thing to do is to sit, because then you see, I mean, you see and experience for yourself the process. I mean, it may be a complete illusion that we have any agency or freedom at all, but as, as uh, Edward Abbey said, it's the only illusion we've got. <laughs> And I, I would say that, that there seems to be agency. The question is sort of what's behind that. Right. There, there is agency and there are persons, it seems, on a certain right. level. But then what is, there, what is behind that? Right. There, you know, the, the question of as the mind turns to seek what is the I or what is the wakefulness behind that and then what happens. Right. Why would we be sitting if we didn't believe that there was some agency, some ability to actually you know, do something with what we've been given by nature. We have, nature seems to also have given us the ability to do something with what we've been given. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it's the only game in town. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, as a complementary age, and I'm wondering if there's been any, you know, study on that, or if people have done that and have found that to work with breaking some of the. Because if you're talking about consciousness and unconscious, 
hypnosis work to the unconscious in order to be able to break some of the habitual thoughts and emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think there are a lot of those techniques are skillful means and and can bring people to uh, to break habits that they want to break mental habits. I think that there there are, you know there are lots of techniques out there. Um, so it's the relationship. Uh, I think that what shifted in in meditation practice for me is this relationship I have to my thinking, and I think that science really can be used. If I can just twist your question a little bit, science can be used as a skillful means, almost as a visualization. That when we sit, if we hold some of this knowledge in our in our minds of how the brain works, for instance, and the processes that go on, or if we even hold an understanding of evolution as we sit, that it, it's almost like a modern visualization that tells us, points to who we are as we're sitting. So that, you know, we have the, the science is really the tool, I think, Every time Buddhism goes to a new culture, it, it sort of takes on some of the, the techniques and the, the wisdom of, of the culture it moves to. And what it's going to, I think, merge with here is science. I really, because I, I, that's our, our knowledge tradition. Our, and all it needs is a little tweaking to become our wisdom tradition. You know, I think we can use it if, if we do it skillfully to really... Uh, you know, aid in our practice. That the person who they got the heart from had, yeah. So that's where the self is. It's in that organ. (laughs) Don't ask me. Yeah, way in the back. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, science has hit the wall of, you know, uncertainty. Uncertainty is a law. So, you know, we can't know anything according to science, for sure. And meditators have been saying that for years as well. You know, you can't know anything for sure. So, yeah, you're right. We can't know anything for sure. So let's, uh, all right, one more, and then a final poem and a final... I don't want to be as close to my 
thinking mind is, uh, I seem to really be most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> they do go to sleep at the same time. <laughs> you just think they go to sleep at the same time. I want to get a poem in here before we go that um, it has to do with what we've been talking about and um, it's a poem by Mary Oliver you know some some poets you're just happy that you're contemporary with them and, and she just came out with a new book called White Rain and this is from White Rain here in my head language keeps making its tiny noises how can I hope to be friends with the hard white stars whose flaring and hissing are not speech but a pure radiance? How can I hope to be friends with the yawning spaces between them where nothing ever is spoken? Tonight at the edge of the field I stood very still and looked up and tried to be empty of words. What joy was it that almost found me? What amiable peace! Then it was over. The wind roused up in the oak trees behind me and I fell back. Earth has a hundred thousand pure contraltos. Even the distant night bird as it talks threat, as it talks love over the cold black fields. Once deep in the woods I found the white skull of a bear and it was utterly silent. And once a river otter in a steel trap and it too was utterly silent. What can we do but keep on breathing in and out? modest and willing and in our places. Listen, listen, I'm forever saying. Listen to the river, to the hawk, to the hoof, to the mockingbird, to the jack in the pulpit. And then I come up with a few words, like a gift, even as now, even as the darkness has remained the pure deep darkness, even as the stars have twirled a little while I stood here, looking up. One sentence after another. So let's just sit for a couple minutes before we break tonight. Just come back into the body, into the center of it all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.